The New Futurist, a podcast with Guy Clapperton. Hello, and thanks for downloading The Near Futurist, a show presented by me, Guy Clapperton. Today, we're going to discuss IT security and whether we're building in structural problems. We'll find out more about that in a minute, but first, as always, a bit about who you're listening to. I'm Guy Clapperton, a technology journalist and media trainer with 30 years' experience. You might have heard me or seen me on the BBC occasionally, read some of my books, or seen me in The Guardian, Intelligence Sourcing Magazine, and elsewhere. I go to a lot of conferences and hear experts talking about their forecasts about the decades to come, but I'd rather use my 30 years experience as a commentator to discuss what's likely to happen later this year, early next, and the action we need to be taking right now. So I came up with the Near Futurist concept. Do please have a look at my website at nearfuturist.co.uk where you'll find more episodes and information on what we're about. If you'd like to book me as a speaker or MC for your technology event, do have a look at the show reel on the site and drop me a line, guy at nearfuturist.co.uk. That's nearfuturist as one word. Or get in touch with my agent, whose details are, of course, on the site. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please do consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or wherever you download from. And if you're new to this show, you're, of course, more than welcome. Thanks for listening. That's more than enough about me, so let's get done with my guest for the show. She's a cybersecurity entrepreneur and has worked with big-name companies such as Siemens and IBM. In 2011, she was awarded the prestigious MBA scholarship with IMD Future Leaders to complement her bachelor's in computer science. Also a mentor with Spark Labs, she is passionate about instilling her knowledge in future entrepreneurs and supporting women in STEM careers. She's co-founder of Clarity, and her name is Galina Antova. Galina, welcome. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So perhaps first you could tell us about Clarity. It's one of those names with a deliberately wrong letter in the middle. There is an O rather than an I. Is that just uh, marketing or does it actually mean something? That's a great observation. Um, Yes, it's actually the purpose of our business. So this is Clarity for OT, which stands for Operational Technology Networks. And Operational Technology Networks are basically the networks that run the world's infrastructure, everything from oil and gas to electric utilities to even the lights in this building. All of that is run on those OT networks. Right. For the benefit of the listeners, we are in a building and it does indeed have lights. (laughs) Uh, So we're talking about security, obviously. So I'd like to really take this Back to basics, something that strikes me, and this could be an age thing. People seem to think they need to be connected all the time. On the way here into central London, I was using my phone on the tube, for example, where where they had Wi-Fi. People do seem to feel they need to be connected all the time, and they know perfectly well that this increases the security risk. Are we actually connecting too much? Before we get to the precautions about security, Are we act, do we actually need to be connected as much as we are? Connectivity is an amazing thing, and it's a great enabler um, of digitalization. And so the context in which I'm going to talk about, that's mainly about critical infrastructure and how we're connecting our physical infrastructure with our digital infrastructure. So when it comes to business outcomes and being more efficient and getting more productivity out of all of that, whether it's sensors or IoT devices, absolutely we need the connectivity. The challenge is that we're connecting to networks that are legacy networks that have been around for 25, 35 years and obviously don't have the security measures that we would expect from the modern IT enterprise network. Now that doesn't mean that we should isolate things. The reality is that we cannot, even if we try. Um, Humans get very creative um, when you tell them that they cannot connect to something. So I think that the biggest challenge is how do we enable that connectivity 
creativity in a secure way. So when you say humans get very creative, you mean they game the system and they cheat? <laughs> that is true. And especially, um, especially when it comes to uh, those critical, sensitive OT infrastructures. For example, if the um, IT security team is not providing them with a legitimate access to the infrastructure they need to manage, they will get pretty creative about how they get there. And obviously, that's not a good thing. Now, that's an interesting point because uh, you're talking about the human element rather than the technical element necessarily. Now, I've been a tech journalist for 30 years and I've made a good living or made a few decent sales selling the don't use your pets or partner's name for your password story. And I imagine I'll be selling it again a few times before I retire because I go into places and people are still doing it. I was once in a technology magazine's office, the news editor was away, so I was sitting at her desk and they said, you won't be able to get into the network, we'll, we'll find you a temporary password for the archive. So I just guessed P-A-S-S-W-O-R-D and I was Can't in, like this was a while ago, but it's not, it, it is still happening. Why hasn't the message got through and are these legacy networks really as insecure as all that or is it the wetware behind it, us lot? Right, so I think the, the short answer to that is human nature. A lot of times security actually um, goes against convenience and obviously humans want the convenience of access and getting things done. Now that is even more important when it comes to those critical infrastructure networks. In a lot of cases actually um, users are sharing the passwords for a lot of those critical systems. That of course is because those systems are very time sensitive. So for example, if you need to shut down the process or if you need to get into an emergency procedure, it is pretty convenient to have the username and password on a sticky note on the computer. That is obviously goes the game every single security practice that we have. So what we need to do is rather than fight, I think, human nature, I think we need to design security products that help humans you know, operate in the in the natural way in which we, we like to while giving them that convenience. And so one of the things that is very important in the world right now is to create security products that eliminate some of that friction, right? And you might have seen alternative ways of logging into machines, etc. When it comes to the critical infrastructure network, it's extremely important to find new innovative ways that allow us to do security without asking the, the security teams to do almost impossible things. So are we talking about things like uh, two-factor authentication, like I get when I'm logging on to Twitter on a new machine, I get, to, as I'm reducing this to a non-enterprise scale so that everyone right. can get yeah. the concept, but so if I log on to Twitter on a new machine, it says, we haven't seen you here before, uh, let's send you a text and make sure it's you, right. uh, so that you know I then get a, a, a code. Is that the sort of thing, or iris recognition, the sort of thing we used to go well Both when it was on James Bond? And, yeah. Uh, now, nowadays, you just <laughs> and now it's just a common, yeah, common yeah, occurrence. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely, it's all of those things that basically um, allow us to use technology and to leverage security in a way that's very natural for humans. Mm. Now that's more on the, the the consumer side. When it comes to enterprise, it's really important to lower the threshold of how much time is required from the security teams to install those products. So, for example, things like asking the security team to install an agent on every single legacy equipment, it's first of all not feasible because some of those devices don't support it, but in other cases, it's it's not even possible from a time perspective. Could you just explain agent for people who yes. might not be security specialists <laughs> Absolutely. like me? Yeah, this will be just one example of a security technology that will be a um, technology piece of code basically that is running on the endpoint preventing security events from, from occurring, malicious events from occurring. Right.
What else can be done in terms of in enterprise security and how do you get around the fact that it's going to be operated by people in the end who are still going to be looking for these you know, little sticky notes, as you say, on the uh, system or using their partner's names or whatever else they might do? The biggest challenge that we're facing in the critical infrastructure operational technology networks is actually the fact that most of those are legacy devices and um, they run on proprietary protocols. So traditional um, software is not really, uh, security software is not easy to install in those networks. They're also completely invisible to security teams. So imagine trying to defend a network that you actually cannot see yourself. So this is one of the biggest challenges um, that companies like mine are addressing today is how can you actually see the infrastructure that you're running so that you've got the advantage of the defender of knowing what is in your own network? So could you just elaborate on the idea that they're invisible? Because I don't know if I've quite grasped that. Are you saying that if there is a, pretend it's a small enterprise, if it were a Windows network, it won't see the Mac uh, in the olden days, because in the, in the corner? Right. Uh, is that the sort of thing we're talking about, except on a vast scale? I'm, I'm just trying to work yeah. out what you mean by invisible. I'll give you a concrete example. Thank so you. think of a manufacturing customer, right? Mm-hmm. So on the regular enterprise office side of the house, you will probably have 20, 30, 40 different security products installed throughout the organization. Whereas in the manufacturing domain, where you've got all of the equipment that is actually running the manufacturing process, all of that is driven by automation. All of that, all automation is is real-time computing, right, that is programmed by humans. And so um, because of the legacy nature of those devices and because for the longest time they have been isolated from the traditional, from the enterprise networks, they have not evolved in terms of their security measures. And so we find ourselves in a situation where now the security team does not even have exact knowledge of how many devices are out there, what those devices are doing. And so what that why that is important is if there was an attacker in those networks, we will have no indication whatsoever that there's something malicious going on in those networks. And actually a good example of that is probably um, the Triton attack, which was a, a sophisticated nation state attack on one of the uh, large petrochemical manufacturer in the Middle East. And so the attackers were actually in the operational technology networks for months and they were not detected. The only reason that that breach got detected is because the attackers accidentally shut down the process. And so when they started investigating why the process has been shut down, um, they actually understood that it's a cyber incident. So being blind to those networks as the defender is a huge disadvantage and, it's a, and it creates um, a huge arbitrage opportunity for the attackers to actually go after those networks. Right, I see. So who are these attackers? I mean, I'm, uh, we, I've heard about... Uh, you know, crime syndicates, I've heard about right. nation-state attackers, I've heard about Fred in his bedroom or something, being, you know, the, the classic picture of a hacker. I'm just wondering, first of all, how many of these attackers are actually real and out there? And does it actually make a difference to somebody as the manager of an enterprise, whether the attacker is Fred in his shed or a nation-state, China yeah. or yeah. Russia or something? That is an excellent question. So again, I will take it from the angle of the critical infrastructure um, of the world. So I'll give you a couple of examples of things that have occurred in the last few years because quite a lot has changed in the threat landscape in the last few years. So one example would be um, NotPetya. So NotPetya was an attack by the Russians initially launched in Ukraine. It was using a very, very powerful exploit, um, and one could only assume that the Russians knew that this would have 
tremendous collateral damage once it was actually released in the wild. And that's exactly what happened. Basically, the, the malware made its way to the operational technology networks of many, many, many of the big companies. And all of that is public information, the likes of you know, FedEx, Merck, Maersk, all of those are very large companies that the malicious software made its way to the operational technology networks shutting down those operations. How certain are we that it was Russia? Because I can't imagine that uh, that nice Mr. Putin put his hands up and said, yeah, fair enough, comrade. It's, um, yeah, it was me. <laughs> that is the kind of the, the common understanding of the threat intel um, community at this time. Of course, you bring up a, a very good point. There is never such thing as 100% attribution in cyber because um, you know folks can actually cover their what they're doing, etc. They can actually de- de- deceive. So there are various ways of manipulating the digital footprint. So you're absolutely right. But you have to take into consideration kind of the, the geopolitical state, the situation, and, and a lot of the technical indicators. Um, I'm not saying it's unlikely for a moment. <laughs> uh, please don't misunderstand me. Yeah. I'm just a little concerned about stating facts when they are actually high probabilities. High probability uh, yeah. is a better description. If yes. that's okay, yes. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Because Russia's um, probably got lawyers, and it's my podcast. <laughs> I, I know who's going to get it in the neck. That's so that will be one example of collateral damage and how the threat landscape has changed. So to your point, in those situations, those companies were not directly targeted by the NotPetya attack. However, they ended up being the victims. Now, um, on the other side, we also have examples of where we do know that nation states were targeting the critical infrastructure. So how certain are we that it's a nation state uh, when I keep reading about these uh, nation state attacks? So for some of the incidents, we have pretty high uh, confidence. Uh, For example, um, in the past, the DHS and the FBI have come out with a joint statement stating that um, Russian nation state actors are actually in some of the networks of critical infrastructure verticals. Um, So I think that when we get when we get that confirmation from a government agency, um, that probably means a high likelihood. That Sorry, once again, could yes. you uh, elaborate on critical infrastructure verticals? What exactly are we talking about there? Absolutely. So it will be the likes of oil and gas, uh, critical manufacturing, um, aerospace. I the, the, the term is typically uh, loosely used as the 16 verticals as defined by the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security in right. the U.S. Okay, so essential services uh, on a national uh, scale level. at all. Correct. National level, that, that, that's fine. Uh, okay, so what can corporations actually, and uh, what, what can these services, these, these uh, critical verticals, actually do about this? Because, you know, if, um, if someone uh, who is a nation state, let's say a large powerful one, uh, like Russia, like China, whoever, is actually after an organization, no matter how big the organization, these are serious players. Yeah, well, first and foremost, we have to start by getting the defenses in place. And so in the last couple of years, we've seen a great increase of awareness amongst the C-level and the boards of of large corporations, which is exactly where that conversation needs to start, because you need accountability, the responsibility for securing the operational technology networks to be assigned to someone in the organization. I was going to ask about that, because you've used the phrase security team a few times. I very rarely come across, maybe I'm talking to the wrong people, but I very rarely come across organizations that have a security team as such. 
Uh, is that becoming more common? Are there enough of them out there? That is becoming uh, more common. And um, in many cases, large corporations will have um, an established IT security team. However, you're absolutely right. OT security is, is basically has been non-existent up until a few years ago. And so now they're adopting responsibility for that. Of course, when you've got new project and you're defending more, so to speak, that means that you need the budgets. And so the fact that those kind of conversations and topics are getting to the board level is extremely important because now we've got accountability, we've got budgets, and we have projects to actually get the defenses in place. And uh, so what sort of risks should corporations these uh, be looking out for in the near future, you know, assuming these teams are starting to be put in place or are becoming established, I should say, I may be a little behind the curve there. Uh, what, uh, what, what, what sort of new challenges you're anticipating in the near future? They absolutely need to start with visibility. In order to defend your territory, you need to know your territory. And so the first part of, of that equation, really important part is to be able to understand what you've got on your networks, what is the risk exposure that the, the different endpoints have, and then from there on, come up with a plan of how to defend them. But it all starts with that initial visibility uh, because what I, what I like to say often is that the absence of evidence is not evidence for the absence of the attackers on those networks. In many cases, we just don't have the telemetry coming from those networks. So we have to create visibility into the networks to be able to know when um, so you know, that's that a great phrase. The yeah. absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. I really like that. It's on my podcast, so I can't steal it. Everyone will know it's not mine. Actually. No, 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 no. Ethics, ethics. Wouldn't, wouldn't be, that, that's a very, uh, very good phrase, though. Thank you for that. So, um, finally, are we going to the end of our time? I'm sure we could talk about this for ages. Where can people find out about uh, more about uh, you and uh, Clarity? They can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and of course on the website, clarity.com. Right, and that's Clarity with an O. We don't know. That's fine. Uh, Galina Antova of Clarity, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton, an air conditioning system and a coffee cup. I'll be back in two weeks' time as always, so don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk. See you in a fortnight.